0: I remember preaching at a gospel meeting in Woodbury, Tennessee, not far from my hometown of Smithville, a few years ago, and preaching on the subject of amazing grace. And I began that sermon by asking if you were to ask people to mention the first hymn that comes to their mind when you say the word hymn, what would the, what would the response likely be in the majority of cases? Amazing grace. But i never forget that Jim Boyd, whom many of you know and appreciate, faithful gospel preacher over the years, he was in attendance that night, and afterwards he said, you know what, what hymn comes to my mind immediately? I said, what? He said, the Lord has been mindful of me. And really, that ought to be the case, really, with with us. Amazing grace, of course, and the Lord has been mindful of me, really go together, because without the amazing grace of God then um, the Lord would not have been mindful of us. But in giving us his only begotten son, because of his amazing grace, he has demonstrated to the fullest possible extent that he is mindful of us, that he loves us, and that indeed we ought to offer to him praise and prayer as his children constantly as a result of the blessings he has bestowed upon us. And the lesson this morning reminds us of one who offered that praise and that prayer to God on a regular basis. He was the man after God's own heart, not perfect, not sinless in that sense of sinless perfection, but perfect in the sense of blameless and whole before God. Oh, yes, he committed his sins, but he repented of those sins, and he is designated as the man after God's own heart. That man, of course, is is David. And the 86th Psalm is attributed to David. In fact, the heading is a prayer of David. And that's a a good uh, designation because it is comprised to a great extent of a beautiful prayer. But it is a beautiful prayer mixed with praise. And I believe it is a psalm that is worthy of our study, as are all the psalms, and as is all the Word of God. I also Recall from my days at Memphis School of Preaching back in the 70s that one of my teachers who's gone on to his reward, as all of my teachers have now, but Brother Frank Young used to tell us, all of my teachers there, not all of my teachers everywhere, but at Memphis School of Preaching anyway, Brother Frank Young used to say, preachers don't, or guys, or fellows, or boys, don't just preach to others and ignore your own spiritual growth. Spend time with the Word of God, not simply to get a lesson to preach to others, but spend time with the Word of God in order to grow spiritually yourselves. And, you know, one would think, well, if I'm preparing sermons to preach to others, that'll come naturally. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And he strongly recommended the book of Psalms as a great devotional book for spiritual growth. And so as I prepared this lesson, I couldn't help but think about how much good it did me to go over and study this beautiful song and I hope that it will be a benefit to you as we study it together this morning. It begins in a beautiful way indeed with these words, Bow down your ear O Lord, hear me. I think that is a beautiful beginning that expresses the majesty of God and the recognition of the psalmist As he began this prayer to God, if you will, of the distance that existed between himself and his God. As he called upon the God of the universe with his majesty and his sovereignty and his power, his omnipotence, to bow down your ear. In other words, lean down, God, and listen to my prayer. What a beautiful way to express it as it reminds us that truly, while God is higher than we are, while his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, he is nonetheless a God who is willing to bow down his ear, as it were, and to hear the prayers of his faithful people. But he adds, after saying, bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, he adds some very, very important words that are absolutely crucial to whether or not God will hear. And he says, for I am poor and needy. And that takes us back to some of the very early words in the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, in that sermon on the mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. David here manifested that Poorness of spirit, that recognition of himself as poor and needy, especially in contrast to the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the pinnacle of that creation being mankind. Bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear one who is poor and needy. And it's interesting in this psalm because every petition, virtually every petition that is made as a part of this prayer of David to God, is followed by a reason that he gives as to why God should hear him. You'll notice that as we go through the psalm. The first one is, Bow down your ear and hear me because I am poor and needy, because I recognize my undone condition, because I recognize my humanity, and because I recognize the vast difference there is between me as a human being and between thee as the God of the universe. The second petition in the second verse is preserve my life. Preserve my life and the reason for it is for I am holy. Hear me, I am poor and needy. Preserve my life for I am holy. Now, is that an arrogant expression that David is making here? You need to hear me God because after all I have have earned your ear. No, no. We know from the very first verse that that's not the attitude that is expressed here. What he is expressing is that I am your servant. He goes on to say that very thing. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Preserve my life for I am holy, save your servant because I trust in you. And these two statements remind us of something that's absolutely crucial if indeed we are to enjoy the blessing of prayer to God with a full understanding and assurance that God will hear us and that is that we must make sure we are holy. Perfect, sinless? No. That's not holiness. Holiness is to be set apart, sanctified for God's use. Those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ have been sanctified, have been set apart for God's use. I recognize we're reading a psalm that was written long before the gospel age ever was ushered into existence. But nonetheless, the principle is the same. For God to hear prayer. It must be prayed by those who are in covenant relationship with him. That's what David expresses not only in the verses we're looking at now, but all through this beautiful song. What a wonderful, beautiful blessing prayer is and the assurance that God hears. But we must make sure that we have brought our lives into harmony with God's will in order to enjoy that blessing and to have that assurance. Preserve my life which may remind us of the occasion for this psalm, which could have been when he was being pursued by Saul in his jealousy of David. You remember those days when he was fleeing from Saul because Saul was so insanely, truly insanely jealous of David. It may have been at the time when Absalom, one of David's own sons, had fostered a rebellion against David and was determined to take his own father's life and to take his own father's throne. But whatever the occasion, it was a time of difficulty, the context indicates. And the plea here in verse 2 is, preserve my life, because I am your child. I am holy, meaning that I am doing your will, save your servant, because I do trust in you. Can he be saying at all that I have deserved the answer to my prayer because I am holy? Well, if we had any doubt about it, look at verse 3. Be merciful to me, O Lord. David understood that despite his holiness, despite the fact that he was doing his best to live in covenant relationship with God, that nonetheless he needed mercy. And there will never be a time in our lives, despite the fact that God's mercy has been shown to its fullest and greatest extent in the giving of God's only begotten Son on Calvary, there will never be a time, nor has there ever been a time, when we will not need God's mercy. But that is not to say that we should not live in holiness and trust and obedience to God. In fact, that is the only way that we can expect to receive God's mercy in the salvation from our sins grace alone cannot save, but we need that grace. That grace in action has been defined as mercy, and the cry here in verse 3 from the psalmist is, Be merciful, because I need your mercy. And without that mercy, I cannot have any hope of salvation from calamity or salvation from sin without that mercy. Be merciful to me, O Lord. Notice For I cry to you all day long. You remember what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17? These simple words, pray without ceasing. And that's what David says he does here. I cry to you all day long. He will mention in this psalm that he calls upon God in the time of trouble, but the clear indication from this psalm is that he called upon God all day long, that is, with regularity that his prayer life was a fervent and regular prayer life as the prayer life of every child of god must be not simply when troubles come to call upon god and say help me god and then during those times of plenty and those times of prosperity we are like the pig who never looks up to see the acorns from which the uh, to see the uh, tree from which the acorns fall no we live in such a way as to cry to him all day long in the times that are good, as well as in the times of trouble. And the result of that relationship, the ability to know that we can call upon God at any time, produces rejoicing. Verse 4, Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Here's that plea again, rejoice the soul of your servant. Here's the reason for it, because I lift up my soul. Now what that indicates is that David did more than say prayers. You know, there is a difference or can be a difference between saying a prayer and praying. Obviously. I could recite a prayer all day long without ever praying. But what this statement, I lift up my soul, indicates is that when I pray, I pray with every fiber of my being and I pour out my heart to the God of heaven. That's the kind of fervency with which prayer should be offered to God by his children. And that's what David is expressing here. And he knows he can do that and that as he does that the response will be in harmony with God's will, and that God will hear and answer in accordance with His will. Verse 5, for you, Lord, are good, and notice this, ready to forgive. Here we get some insight from the psalmist into the nature of God. It is sad today that some have the misapprehension of the God of heaven and think that He's some sort of tyrant who sits on a throne, as it were, and just simply waits to punish those who violate His will. Oh, yes, God will punish those who violate His will, and ultimately there will be a day of reckoning, and the Bible makes that abundantly clear. But what the Bible also makes equally clear is that as we await that final judgment in which all of us will appear, God remains ready to forgive. He remains ready to bow down His ear and to hear. Now, that's not the way... That's not the way we are saved initially, but that's the way we maintain our salvation after we have been saved initially by prayer for the sins we inevitably will commit as children of God despite our best efforts and as we continue to trust and obey Him. Ready to forgive. But the latter part of this verse reminds us of how we initially call upon God to obtain the salvation that puts us into that praying relationship. Listen to it. And abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Now David is called upon God, calling upon God in prayer. And certainly that's one way in which we call upon God as his children. But what about before we become his children? This expression, calling upon you, reminds us of how it is that sinners, outside of covenant relationship with God in Christ, are taught in Scripture, and that's what we must be concerned about, not what men teach, but what God, through His Word, teaches us to do to call upon Him in becoming His children. And I've said many times, tragically, the popular method is prayer today, the so-called sinner's prayer. Simply pray, invite Jesus into one's heart, and accept Him as one's personal Savior. That is the most prevalent method that is taught in the religious world but tragically it is completely contrary to what is taught in the word of God calling upon the name of the Lord initially involves a process not a prayer remember Saul of Tarsus and it is not the purpose of this sermon to examine in detail his conversion but one can briefly review it and understand fully that praying a prayer does not initially save one from his sins for Saul of Tarsus met the Lord on the Damascus road And as he saw the Lord there, the Lord appeared to him to qualify him to later become an apostle. Not to save him on the Damascus road, but everyone who was an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord. And Saul of Tarsus had never seen the risen Lord. So the Lord appeared to him to qualify him to become an apostle after he was converted to Christ. And he cried out to the Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said, go into the city of Damascus and there it will be told you what you must do. Must do to what? To be saved. And then the Lord appeared to a disciple named Ananias and told him to go to Saul of Tarsus. And as he told him to go, the Lord Jesus Christ said to this disciple Ananias about Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. That's so significant in light of what's taught in the religious world today. Behold, he is praying. Why was he praying? Because that's all he knew to do. Was he eating and rejoicing? No, he was struck blind. He wouldn't eat or drink for three days. Does that sound like a man who's rejoicing over his salvation back on the Damascus road? No. But when Ananias came to him, as we learn from the full account of his conversion from Acts 9, Acts 22, and also information from Acts 26, in Acts twenty-two sixteen, here's what Ananias told Saul of Tarsus who was praying, the Lord said, "'Arise, why are you waiting?' Now I'm going to tell you what you must do. You have believed, obviously. You have repented of your sins. That's obvious. You've confessed the Lord, but something else remains. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Listen to it. Calling on the name of the Lord. It's so clear. That calling on the name of the Lord initially is a process, not merely a prayer. That's what Saul of Tarsus had to do to become a Christian. That's what every conversion in the book of Acts culminates with, that burial and baptism where the blood of Christ is applied, not the water that cleanses, but the blood of Christ is applied when we submit to that watery burial to cleanse us from sin and to allow us to rise, to walk in newness of life. That's calling upon the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, we mentioned in Bible class this morning that Peter quoted Joel's prophecy. When Joel said, in that day, beginning on that day of Pentecost, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what he said. All I have to do is know what they did on the day of Pentecost to be saved, and I know immediately what it means to call on the name of the Lord. What did they do on Pentecost to be saved, some 3,000 souls? They believed, repented, they obviously confessed, because that's elsewhere taught in Scripture, and they were what? Baptized. Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins." Joel said, in that day those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In that day those who were saved called upon the Lord by belief, repent, repentance, confession and baptism. Completely consistent with Saul of Tarsus who was told, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. It's not the water that cleanses But God has chosen the water in which to apply the blood of His Son. And only in that burial can we arise to walk in newness of life, having called upon the name of the Lord in obedience to His will. And from that day forward, we can call upon the Lord in prayer with the full assurance that as His obedient children... We have lovingly and willingly brought our lives into harmony with His will and therefore we enjoy a privilege that is beyond preciousness in its value. That word falls short of describing the wonderful privilege of prayer and the knowledge that God will hear those who call upon Him. Verse 6, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications In the day of my trouble I will call upon you, listen to it, for you will answer me. What confidence David expresses. Not an arrogance, but a confidence. And we can boldly approach the throne of God today if we're children of God, Christians, through our mediator and high priest Jesus Christ boldly and confidently, not arrogantly, but with full confidence that he will hear and that he will answer. And yes, sometimes the answer will be no. And sometimes the answer will be yes. And sometimes the answer will be wait a while. But what we can have full assurance about is that that answer will be the best answer for us because it comes from the one who created us, the one who loves us supremely, and the one who will answer in accordance with his will and what is truly best for our lives. Therefore, we never question the answer because of the one who gives it. Those are words through verse 7 that constitute a beautiful prayer. But in verses 8 through 10, These verses constitute more praise. And as we said at the outset, the combination of prayer and praise characterizes this beautiful psalm. But in verse 8, beginning, David praises God by saying, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works among the gods, the so-called gods, the false gods, the gods that have no mind, the gods that have no life, the gods that have no ability to answer a prayer or to hear a prayer. And yet in the history of God's people, time and time again, they went into idolatry, worshiping the works of men's hands, rather than worshiping the living God. Well... Tragically, there are myriads of people still doing that today. Oh, not necessarily falling down before some golden calf or some idol of that nature. But worshiping self, worshiping pleasure, worshiping the things of the world, placing their confidence and their priorities where they don't need to be placed. Covetousness is idolatry, remember Colossians 3 verse 5. And we're characterized to a great extent in the world in which we find ourselves today by those that have been consumed with covetousness and who've lost sight of the power and the majesty and the love and the mercy of God. Verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Ultimately, that will be the case, won't it? When every knee shall bow, as Paul wrote in the Philippian letter, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord. But tragically, for most people, that confession and that recognition of the power of God and of Jesus Christ will come at a time when it's too late to affect their eternal salvation. Now is the time to come to the realization that there are no gods but God. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. All we have to do is look around us, especially at this time of year, and see the great and wondrous things that God has done and continues to do. As one season fades into another, each with its own beauty, each with its own message, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night show us knowledge. There is no speech nor language in which their voice is not heard. And yet, the vast majority of those living don't really hear it in the sense that the majesty and the wonder of God does not lead them to study the revelation of God. Creation should lead to revelation. Creation and the recognition that God created all things should lead us to look for His revelation of Himself to us. And it's here. It's here. And yet, most ignore it and do not seek it. And a vast number of people don't even recognize what's around us as creation, they view it as mindless evolution. Mindless evolution. I think Janice mentioned to me the other day that someone had written or she had seen somewhere where the time will come when people will look back at this time and those who embraced evolution in our day in the same way that we look back and see those who embrace the flat earth theory in the days of Columbus. Interesting, isn't it? And yet the evolutionists would tell us you are ignorant, and idiotic if you do not embrace the theory of evolution. You are uninformed completely. Intimidation is the order of the day by the evolutionist. No, those who are objective, those who will lay aside their prejudices and truly look at what they need to be looking at, will understand and appreciate what David expresses here. You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And then in the final verses from 11 through 17, going from prayer in the first seven verses to praise in verses 8 through 10, the two are combined so beautifully in verses 11 through 17 of this psalm. Prayer and praise. As he cries out in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in Your truth. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today, in this the final dispensation of time, the admonition is teach us your way, O Lord. That is the way of the new covenant, the New Testament. And that New Testament is the truth in which we are to walk. But notice this plea. Unite my heart to fear your name. That is absolutely crucial for us to appreciate what David is crying out for here. He is saying, in effect, make my singular goal, the singular goal of my mind, the biblical heart, the goal of serving you and focusing on you and not allowing distractions of the world to keep me from rendering unto you wholehearted service. That's the next statement. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. How many times in Scripture do we hear that admonition? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, from Old Testament to new. God desires, deserves, and demands a heart that is united, a heart that is focused on wholehearted service to him. Hosea 10, verse 2, the problem with God's people then, your heart, he said, is divided. And the problem today, yes, at times, even with those in the kingdom, is a divided heart because Satan seeks to distract. Satan seeks to divide the heart. He's perfectly willing for us to give partial allegiance to God as long as we will still render partial allegiance to him. That pleases Satan, but it does not please God. And that's what God has made abundantly clear in his word. And that's what David understood. That's why he pleaded, Unite my heart to fear your name. Fear, dread, terror? No. To reverence your name with the kind of reverential fear that should characterize all of us. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forevermore. Why, David? For great, verse 13, is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David understood that God had delivered him before. God had preserved him. And now at a time when the proud have risen against me, verse 14, and a mob of violent men have sought my life, and have not set you before them. He needs God to help once again. In verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Mercy and truth. Can you separate the two? Many try. And they certainly want to exalt the mercy of God, but to ignore the truth. God is a God of mercy, but a God of truth. O oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Verse 16 carries us all the way back to verse 1 in thought. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me. And now verse 16, oh, turn to me. It's as though God, God is going away or God is looking away. Turn to me. I can't keep up with God but God can turn to me. And here he pleads with him to do that. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant. And notice this, and save the son of your maidservant. Now that's interesting. It's Mother's Day in our nation. And this may be the only place in the Psalms, the only place in Scripture where David Alludes to his own mother. that's the clear indication, isn't it? Save the son of your maidservant. The son of your maidservant. God's maidservant, David's mother. What's the implication? The implication is that David's mother was a follower of God. And that David's mother was the kind of mother that had brought him up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The kind of mother who prayed for her son and prayed that he would ultimately be the kind of man who would pray a prayer like this to the God of heaven, who would submit his life to God. And if that is the case, then her prayer was answered and her efforts were not in vain. Well, things don't always turn out the way we would hope they would with our children, but we must nonetheless recognize the importance and the value of being the kind of parents who always pray, live, and work to be the right kind of example to our children at whatever age they are younger or older, at home or away, so that they see in us a consistency that hopefully will cause them to return if they have faltered and failed, and a consistency that will cause them, if they are faithful, to continue to be faithful, because they see in us the kind of faith that is indicated in David's mother and how thankful we are are all the godly mothers who are here today and the godly mothers everywhere who are so crucial, so absolutely crucial to the home as God intended for that home to function. The indication here is that David had that kind of mother because he refers to her here as your maidservant, indicating that she had the relationship with God that she should have had. And finally, show me a, a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, lo- you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Is he asking for God to do a miracle? Not necessarily here, no. Just simply do something in delivering me here from this crisis, whatever it was, whether it was Saul or Absalom, his, only so- his own son who was seeking his life in rebellion to his father and to God. Whatever the case, deliver me in a way that proves to my enemies that you have preserved me. And what that simply reminds us of, if we're in covenant relationship with God, is that God's providence is very much present in our lives. Can we always put our finger on the providence of God and say, I know that God helped me here, not in some miraculous direct way, but through his providence, through natural means. I know that God has worked behind the scenes, as his word assures us he does, to bring about something for my good and my benefit. We can't always identify it, but we're assured that we have it. And whoso is wise, the psalmist says elsewhere, and will observe these things... Even he shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. That's Psalm 107, verse 43. A psalm that depicts God's providential care in the lives of his people. If we're wise, we'll observe these things. And we'll understand that God is loving. God is kind. And the ultimate good will be done for his children by the God who loves us supremely. Have you called upon him so that you can call upon him as David was calling upon him in this beautiful psalm we've just studied. If you haven't, the only way you can is by a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus to be Lord and Christ, and then burial and baptism for the remission of sins. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, John 8:24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3, and those words repeated at verse 5. Confess me before men, and I will confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. He that believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. The words are clear, the plan is simple. And if you haven't obeyed it, we plead with you to do it now. And if you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child, in repentance and confession of sin that's been committed publicly, confess it in that same way, simply saying, I have sinned, please pray with me and for me, and we'll do just that, to a God who loves you as David knew he loved him, and who will deliver. As we stand to sing, will you come?
1: Oh, so much stay Away from Jesus Don't wait too long Decide today And come Repenting, of oh soul don't wait, don't wait too long Don't wait too long Don't wait too long Decide today and come Jesus, oh soul, don't wait too long. Today may be the last one given. Don't wait too long. Decide today for home and heaven don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. <coughs> Don't wait too long. <coughs> Decide today and come to Jesus also. Oh don't wait too long. While we in love for you are praying, Don't wait too long. <coughs> Accept his word and come obeying us. Jesus oh, so, don't wait too long. Be seated, please. <coughs> please turn to two hundred and sixty five. <coughs> two sixty five. Sing the first two verses of prayer minds the Lord's Supper. When my love to Christ grows weak, when far deeper faith I seek, then in thought I go to Thee, garden of Yes. Stronger
2: Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this unleavened bread, which to the Christian represents the body of Christ that was broken on Calvary. As we partake this morning, help our minds to go back to that cruel cross. May we see your love demonstrated, and may we see the suffering and agony that Christ went through as he freely and willingly gave his life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Father, as we continue thanks for this memorial, we're reminded of the love that thou hast for us in sending thy son to this earth to die for our sins. We're so thankful, Father, that your love shines with us every day. As our children, we can look forward to spending eternity with thee. We're thankful for this fruit of the vine, which represents the blood that was shed on Calvary. And as we partake of this this morning, Father, pray that our minds and our hearts will be uh, Reflecting upon that great sacrifice that was made in our behalf. For this is our prayer in the wonderful holy name of Jesus. Amen. That concludes the memorial service we now have opportunity to give as we have been prospered. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we reflect upon the many ways that you've blessed our lives, we give you thanks now for this opportunity to return a portion of those blessings that you have so freely given us. We pray, Father, that these funds would be used to Uh, spread the gospel to those who do not presently know thee, that many would come to know thee and be obedient to thy will. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we have our closing song and prayer just before Jim got up to preach to us found out that Ronnie Brewer was taken to the hospital yesterday afternoon with some difficulty don't know what that status is right at the moment but we'll try to find out this afternoon Let's keep, I'm sure he'd appreciate our prayers thank you for being here today we're glad you're here come back and be with us tonight at 6 o'clock group number 2 don't forget our meeting this afternoon at 5 o'clock
1: Six hundred seventy five. <clears throat> we'll sing the third verse only, and then we'll be dismissed. If you would please stand. Six, seven, five. I believe that this life with its great mysteries surely some they will come to an end i, I been
2: We thank thee for this opportunity we've been to have to come here again today and worship thee. We thank thee for this special occasion where we we consider our mothers and the love for them for bringing us, giving us life on this earth and, and willingly giving up many long different days of, of probably pain mostly that in raising each of us and especially the guidance that they give us on throughout life. We pray that each of us will take this advantage and opportunity today to show our love to our mothers. We pray now that you will be
0: with us as we depart. This prayer is in Christ's name. Amen.